When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman. CapEx's editor. This week's guest on Free Exchange is Sir Christopher Malaby, a diplomat who spent most of his career on the front line of the Cold War. At the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Sir Christopher was in Moscow. Back in London, he helped to formulate Britain's policy towards the Soviet Union. When the Berlin Wall came down, he was Britain's ambassador to West Germany and would go on to become Britain's first ambassador to a reunified country. Sir Christopher has just published his memoirs, which are titled Living the Cold War. I spoke to Sir Christopher about his distinguished diplomatic career, his disagreements with Margaret Thatcher, and how to think about the Russian threat in 2018. Can we start at the uh, beginning of your diplomatic career, which was uh, Moscow? Yeah. Um, I thought one of the fascinating things about the book was actually just the descriptions of life in Moscow, Mm -hmm. uh, what it it was like to be there. And Mm -hmm. I think 1961, you you Mm -hmm. arrived. So perhaps uh, talk about that and tell me about sort of daily life. Well, I went there as a very young and at that moment still just bachelor um, diplomat. I just learned Russian uh, and I was very excited and thrilled to be dealing with the big, big threat in the world. I mean, the Soviet Union had said, we will bury you, the capitalist world, Khrushchev. Uh, and they met that, and they actually believed that their ideology was superior and destined, I mean predestined, to take over the world. So to face that in daily work for me as a beginner was a real thrill. Uh, and that was a fascination which kept one going, even when everyday, normal, ordinary things uh, were difficult. Uh, I mean, the climate is hell. The days of light, the hours of light in the winter are something like five or six or seven mm-hmm. in Moscow. Um, and the uh, atmosphere, the attitude to us was hostile. Uh, and there was a hell of a lot of attempts by the KGB to suborn Western diplomats. Um, so uh, that was, you could say, oppressive. But the work was fascinating. So my wife and I, when I got married quite soon, were um, thought the balance of being there, not for too long at a time, but the balance was definitely positive because of the fascination of the work. And 12 years later, we went back gladly, and this was Brezhnev, 
um, because of that, because we wanted to see how the Soviet Union was evolving or declining, uh, and to see um, how the attitude of them to the West had evolved from risk-taking, like Khrushchev at Cuba, uh, and into what the Russians themselves call stagnation. No, nothing too exciting, just pottering along. Muddling down is a good expression for what they were doing there. They did harass us, so uh, you would have your telephone ringing all night uh, if they were crossed with the British Embassy at a particular time. They'd just ring, 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 and if you pulled it out of the water, it screamed and went on screaming. So that's kind of sort of trivial harassment, which we had a lot, uh, and being followed around, not in an, an aggressive way, but in a sort of, in a carefully visible way to mm -hmm. make you realize that you were under surveillance. So what? I mean, it, it was the Cold War and we were dealing with these people and to be involved at the very front line in dealing with these people was a thrill. And, uh, but I mean, the scale of the oppressiveness, I mean, you say that your, your apartment, for example, was, had a microphone in it and oh, yes. you couldn't say anything in there that, um, uh, to do but, with oh, your but work. You can learn to deal with that. I mean, it's just in all the um, little decorations around the neck of a hanging light in the middle of a room on the ceiling mm -hmm. were microphones. We all knew where they were. If you got up on a ladder and looked closely, you could see the little holes where the listening device was hidden. Uh, so what? You just don't say things which would matter. You wouldn't think of, I've said this in the book, you wouldn't think of coming home anyway and saying to your wife, oh, we've had an instruction from the, from the foreign secretary uh, to talk to the Russians about fisheries. There's a terrible problem in the, in, in the, in the North Sea or something like that. You, I didn't ever talk policy in my flat, and even here, I mean, it would bore my wife to scream. So, so that's not the temptation. The temptation could be, as I've written, that we went to a dinner party last night of Western diplomats in Moscow, and they're all, they're all in their 20s, and they're all enjoying life, uh, and um, there's a bit of gossip going on. Mm. And one of the ladies, probably in her 20s, uh, says to another lady, um, did you notice today at lunch or at the parade on Red Square that so-and-so was flirting with so-and-so? Mm. Or um, you might get uh, somebody saying, uh, the Italian, that young Italian, diplomat, it's terrible because he's got himself completely broke. What would happen? KGB would, would, would offer him money. I mean, they would do this not without any serious subtlety. Somebody would come up to him in the street and, and, and say, um, can we help? Uh, and if you accept money, or if you accept a young lady, um, you will afterwards be approached by the KGB and asked for a secret. The first question actually won't be a secret, it'll be something easy and pu public. Mm. The case in our, that I saw was um, a KGB questioner saying, well, we have photographs of you, this is not me, another person in the British Embassy, of you um, uh, when you were um, having sex with a, that Russian girl in Kiev. Good, good, good photographs we've got, but never mind about that. Just tell me one thing. What's the job in the British Embassy of Mr. So-and-so? Well, Mr. So-and-so's job is on an embassy list which is published. And so it's not very difficult to say he's the scientific advisor in the embassy. Mm -hmm. 
But once you've said something which is not secret, then they will creep onwards until they get you onto confidential information. The case of the French ambassador, which I relate in the book, uh, I think is very interesting because they got him um, seduced by a ballerina. Uh, and then a person who, a male, male, who, very male, male, who um, claimed to be the ballerina's husband, stormed into, the, into her apartment when they were together in bed. Uh, and um, he beat up the ambassador, not too bit seriously, just gave him a couple of thumps. Uh, and then um, later, the ambassador turned for help to a Soviet Air Force general whom he had made friends with personally, probably planted there by the KGB for this kind of opportunity. And the Air Force General um, said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I'll see what I can do. And then later said, I don't think you'll be bothered. And I'm practically certain this, I cannot know this is deduction, but I think what was going on there uh, was that this, this ambassador who was a, had worked for de Gaulle in London during the war, when he left Moscow, was very likely to have a very important senior confidential job in de Gaulle's entourage in president in Paris. And that's when they would have turned to him and said the KGB would have you wouldn't want that story, would you? Those photographs to get out. So um, let's talk. Mm -hmm. I think that's what would have happened, but it never got that far because the French found out what was happening and they sacked him. And, and what was it that uh, de Gaulle said to him when he went back to Paris? There was a... Well, I don't know. There's a, as, I've, as I've written, um, there are several versions of that. But uh, the most usual version is, Eh bien, de gens en baise, which roughly means, uh, okay, de gens, you've been screwing. Right. <laughs> and um, your approach, I think this is when you come back to Moscow later uh, and you're more senior, whenever this sort of thing happens with embassy staff, you, just, you take a slightly different approach, which is to mm -hmm. basically very, assuming they, <coughs> assuming they tell you what's happened, you very publicly, so the KGB and, 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 and the Soviets have no, are perfectly aware of it, make it clear that you know that this, this member of staff's wife knows, and so this person can't be undermined. Yeah, if blackmail is possible, only when the information is going to shame the person caught, the person suborned. So if you could achieve a situation after an incident like that, which probably wasn't the embassy staff person's fault at all, uh, probably happened in the night when they were drugged in a provincial hotel, that was usual. Uh, so um, if, if when that person came back to Moscow, came to see the boss, and said, it's awful, I got caught in this, this and this way. Instead of the embassy sending that person home, which was a pretty um, nasty thing to do and deprived us of expertise, and if it was a Russian speaker, very much deprived us of expertise. Instead of that, I just made it clear to the KGB that he, this boy had told me, the boss therefore knows, therefore there's no, there's no blackmail vis-a-vis -vis the management, and if the wife, if it was a wife, uh, is uh, also visibly aware of what's happened and forgives him, and all that is said in telephone conversations between the wife and me, or the wife and him, all recorded by the KGB, after that, there's no blackmail opportunity. So that's what we did. 
Uh, and of course it deprived them of the jobs. So these people then stayed on in the embassy and we were not deprived or they deprived uh, of the interest of what they were doing. And then outside this sort of embassy world, um, the, 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 the Russian population in Moscow, you describe this, the, cha- the big change between your first stint there and your second stint there is, is sort of emergent, emerging hopelessness, basically. Yeah, hopelessness is a good word. Apathy. Uh, in the first time we were there, um, the people seemed still to believe that uh, socialism, as they called it, Marxism, Leninism, they meant, uh, could deliver, would deliver a better life. Uh, And that belief, that confidence seemed to have gone when we came back 12 years later. I tell the story about GUM, the famous department store, where when I asked for razor blades in 1962, um, they smiled and said one Russian word, budget, which means we shall have them. It will be, literally that means. So that was an optimistic answer. We'll have it one day. 12 years later, 1975 or something, um, the same, uh, I tried the same ruse in the same shop and the girl just shrugs and looks cross and said, nieto, rather nastily, nieto means got, got none. So that's a change. Uh, it's a tiny example of an more important change. Uh, and you have the confidence that socialism would deliver a better future has really gone away and cynicism, apathy, have replaced it. There's a more important and interesting question, which is when did the Soviet leaders themselves come to that conclusion? And I have various friends in the next generation of people who are descended from uh, Soviet leaders, uh, mostly now in the West, um, who say 1982 is a good sort of rule of thumb for answering, uh, answering that that question, which means, of course, going back to the debate about Poland, that by the time that happened, uh, just about at that time, uh, they, the Soviet authorities, the government, the party, were no longer confident of their ideology, no longer optimistic about the ability of the ideology to deliver a better life for the Soviet people, let alone to sweep the world. Uh, And that loss of confidence may be part of the reason why they did not insist on getting rid of solidarity and in effect colluded in the loss of Poland from socialism to democracy. Uh, And that that downfall of of the Soviet Union, in hindsight, can seem inevitable. Of course, it wasn't necessarily inevitable. And what what was the feeling like in the British Embassy in, in the 60s or the 70s? I mean, did 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 this, did you feel? Did, did the staff there feel as though? The, did you feel as though you would you would always win this battle, and that the contradictions of Marxist-Leninism were so great that they could it couldn't possibly triumph, or was it? Or did it feel up for grabs? Well, what you saw, whether in the early sixties or the mid seventies, was a system which was not delivering a better life. There were some improvements in those twelve years. Oranges were in the shops occasionally, uh, but they weren't systemic improvements. The system itself was not really changed. It was a bit less brutal. Uh, The um, camps and the shot in the back of the neck 
that had been the system of Stalin, which had not completely disappeared under Khrushchev, but much, much, much less. By then, in the, in the mid-70s, it wasn't like that. People were sent to camps, but they weren't murdered, or usually weren't murdered. So there was a change, but it wasn't the sort of improvement, the triumphant growth of the economy, uh, that um, the communist leaders had promised and had threatened to the world. Uh, so it didn't look at all as though Marxism and Leninism in 1961 or in 1975 was going to triumph. It didn't look as though it was going to work for the Russian people. Uh, and so we believed that in due course, one day it would fail. My own view was wrong. Um, I thought in 1981-82 that they would have to uh, put an end to solidarity because otherwise there would be uh, the loss of Poland, the most important of the satellites, and a big, big barrier of what's called a, a frontier state between the Soviet Union or the Russian world and NATO uh, would be lost. Poland would be lost. Now, um, that is actually what they said to each other in their own leadership meetings in 1961-62. Comrades, it's not only possible that solidarity might take over in Poland, but if that happened, it would spread. It could spread to other fraternal countries, that means satellites uh, in Eastern Europe, um, and uh, it might even affect the Soviet Union itself. They knew that, and they didn't really do anything about it. They knew martial law, the method they tried, might not work. So that's a completely different attitude from believing um, we're going to, with our, with our ideology, we are going to sweep the world. That's gone completely. So somewhere between the, the early 60s and the early, 70, early 80s, in those 20 years, it had declined and frittered away. And you thought the, I take it then you thought that the eventual, the end of it would be far bloodier than it was in the end. I mean, if you thought that they would have done, done more about solidarity, for example. Well, um, what I thought would happen, uh, looking at this at the time when the solidarity affair was going on, and I was at that time head of the Soviet and East European side of the Foreign Office, um, it was, they would hold on longer. They had a grip through the KGB on Soviet society and they would, uh, they would manage to continue for a time. The Soviet Union was muddling downwards. Uh, I remember using that phrase with Margaret Thatcher. They were muddling downwards and they, uh, we thought could go on like that for a bit longer. We couldn't say how long, some years longer would have been my phrase. Well, that would turn out to be wrong. I mean, the whole system imploded uh, uh, in 1991. And you didn't just um, get a view uh, of a uh, front row seat, as it were, in the Cold War in Moscow. You also were in um, Berlin. Um, in the seventies, is that right? Or end, end of the sixties. So, so, and what and what was what was life like there compared to, to to Moscow? It was much better. Berlin was uh, an island of democracy and prosperity and security, right in the middle of communist East Germany. The contrast between West Berlin and East Germany was absolutely crying out loud, uh, and. West Berlin did not feel like um, 
an area of two million people on a knife edge. It felt confident and secure. The Allied forces were there. We had, we had a large British contingent and it was a larger American and a smaller French contingent were there of forces. And so um, they felt, the Berliners saw that, and we made ourselves conspicuous in public life in Berlin, uh, that they were safe, that the Soviet Union would not attack because they would have had to attack uh, NATO forces and that would have escalated into a great confrontation. So the Berliners believed that uh, and they went about their daily life. They were in a prosperous situation and everything went pretty well. The only thing I'd say about Berlin at that time uh, is that a particular um, characteristic of the situation was that there was no uh, German military service in Berlin because Berlin was not uh, legally part of the Federal Republic in the West. It was under a special regime <clears throat> where the Allies were ultimately holding certain powers regarding Berlin, that was us. So um, the uh, Berliners were seeing people, quite large numbers of people who were draft dodgers from West Germany coming to, East, coming to West Berlin to, to avoid the draft. And that meant that there was quite a large um, population of people who were dissident in, towards authority. They didn't like the Springer press. Uh, they didn't like the American engagement in Vietnam. Uh, and in 1968, the manifestation in the form of demonstrations and so on was very sharp uh, in Berlin. Uh, and it was not, however, taken up by the trades unions or the, um, or for that matter, even the East German authorities, who were rather frightened of it. If that happened in Berlin, spreading into East Germany, another kind of contagion they wouldn't have wanted. So um, Berlin really felt, felt stable with that one exception, but then that exception existed in Berkeley and in Cambridge, many, many other places in the West as well. So I didn't regard that as, as a specificity of West Berlin. It was just a, a particularly acute example of what was happening in many places. That um, sort of unrest there had the potential to become very difficult for you uh, in your job in Berlin because I mean, perhaps describe why. I mean, it, yes, I mean, it, it's thank goodness that did not happen. The um, police in West Berlin had really no backup forces to turn to, law and order forces. Um, the uh, Bundeswehr, the West German army, was not present in West Berlin again, for reasons deriving from the agreements among the Allies in 1944-45. So um, the Bundeswehr, they could not turn to the West German forces. Uh, and the Allies were there, and there were Allied soldiers there in quite large numbers. And the theoretical question might have been, the police, police president, as he was called, the commander of the police, um, might turn to us and say, look, we simply cannot cope today. You've got to put... Uh, soldiers in front of this demonstration and help us to contain it. That would have been exactly what we're not there for. We are there to look after, to deter the threats to the West Berliners. For us to be engaged against the, in the population of, of West Berlin would have been a really awful thing. We didn't want to do it at all. 
Uh, we didn't decide to do it in certain circumstances. We watched very carefully to see what the considerations would be, and it never came near to that. I never had to write a piece of paper saying the pros of our involvement are these, the, the cons are these, and on balance, I think X or Y. I never had to write that, thank God. It never came to that point. And if it had come to that point, the it would have mostly been a a huge PR coup for, 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 for the East. Was that the sort of big, biggest problem? Or That's not the biggest problem, uh, but it, it certainly is something which would have been exploited like mad in the propaganda of East Germany and, and of the Soviet Union. No, the biggest problem for us was we didn't want it. We didn't want to be engaged uh, in a... Uh, row, a confrontation between the authorities uh, of, of democratic Germany uh, and the students or the young people on, on the street. Uh, and as I say, we saw, that fit, we saw that theoretical possibility. We didn't want it at all and luckily it didn't happen. And then a, a little later on, you, um, you're in London and you are, as you, I think you've already said, um, effectively running the Soviet side of the of the Foreign Office, uh, when and that's when Margaret Thatcher um, comes into power. In the book, you write that you expected you expected her views to be further from the Foreign Office view than they in fact were. What was the um, what were the sort of dividing lines then in 1979? Well, she uh, saw that we in the Foreign Office were extremely strong in believing in deterrence of Soviet temptations to aggression or the threat of aggression. So um, NATO and the maintenance of modern weaponry for NATO to deter Soviet risk-taking, like Cuba, you know, that was a very influential thing in 1962. Uh, and we, we always had in mind the possibility that another Soviet leader, not Khrushchev, might try something like that. Margaret Thatcher accepted that she saw that we had the same view as her on that. Uh, on the other hand, we had another view, which she did not share. Uh, that was the view that detente, as it was called, relaxation of tension, increase of exchanges with the Soviet Union and the other communist countries, could actually get information about the uh, better standard of living, the better results of our system into the public opinion in those communist countries. And it was done in many ways, including broadcasting. Um, and she thought that was a tactic, which was a soft tactic in dealing with the Soviet Union. We should be tough on everything. We thought that we could uh, organize exchanges, youth exchanges and many others, which um, would bring information into the Soviet Union, into East Germany and so on. Uh, without any um, concession to them in the world or in their foreign policy. And we went on with that. I mean, she didn't like it and she also didn't stop it. Uh, and that policy suffered, suffered a setback um, at that time with various Soviet actions and also with the Soviet reaction to Reagan, who was extremely tough. Um, so it went, it uh, quietened down that detailed attempt but it had already happened for some years uh, and it resumed afterwards. And I think it did do good. That is to say, I do think that the Helsinki Final Act with all those um, undertakings 
uh, about freedom and so on, which the Soviet Union uh, signed and did not intend, never intended, of course, to apply in its own country. I nevertheless think that that agreement, which all the communist countries signed with all of us in Helsinki in 1975, uh, was influential in the end of communism in Europe because it became well known across those countries that there was an agreement which their leaders had signed, which was for exactly what they, the dissidents, were wanting. And then um, uh, in 1988, you become uh, ambassador to West Germany. Uh, and in fact, you're the, you're the last ambassador to West Germany and the first um, ambassador to a unified uh, uh, Germany. Mm. When you're uh, the British ambassador somewhere when something as momentous as the Berlin Wall coming down is, what, how, how do you go about your job of advancing British interests when something so complicated, something so fast moving and so sort of global in nature is happening? Well, what I did was to write for the Foreign Office a lot of factual analysis and my own views on what would happen after the fall of the war uh, and whether it would lead to German unification or whether it would lead to that, but not immediately, after some years, or whether it, there would be some other arrangement, for instance, two German democracies but not united. You could say Austria, and it is a German democracy in a way, uh, and its relationship with Germany proper could have been the model for the, for the relationship between a democratic ex-communist East Germany and the Federal Republic itself. Um, I thought that that kind of interim or transitional arrangement was conceivable, but I didn't think it would last because I thought it would be so obvious to the people of East Germany when they could come to the West and see it all, that they would want to have the same extraordinary life, very, very high standard of living, which West Germany had achieved. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm just going back, back a little bit. The, the unraveling, I mean, the events that led up to the wall coming down and so on. We, I take it you were taken by surprise like everyone else in, in the sense that it happened so suddenly and... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the opening of the wall was a, was a mistake. I mean, they didn't intend it. Uh, and there was a, a, a cock-up press conference, which said they were going to do it. Uh, they didn't mean that. Uh, and the chap who read it out hadn't been at the meeting where it had been decided. So um, they, it was a, a fantastically positive cock-up. Uh, and it led to the opening of the wall. Uh, and that was not what we'd expected then. What we expected was reform in East Germany, which was happening. Reform in East Germany away from autocracy towards some loosening of that system uh, would have meant uh, that within East Germany things were changing. But at the same time, to the east of East Germany, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, that was happening. That's to say that democracies were breaking out to the east of East Germany, when already to the west of East Germany, there was the superlatively successful democratic West Germany. And the idea of a single nation hadn't gone away, or a single language, or a single culture. They still felt a lot of affinity. So um, the only question was, will this be a gradual process of change over some years, or will it be faster than that? What actually happened was that it was instant. I mean, unification was like, like a, a making Nescafe. It was very, very quick. Uh, and that was a problem because for me, and it was a real problem, because um, what was going on was very fast and could be destabilizing. And we and the Americans and the French had certain rights with regard to what was called the German question in the treaties at the end of the war. In other words, the future of Germany, would it be reunited, would it not be reunited, and so on. And we were not much being consulted. We knew what was going on. We were being told, and I made it my business to talk to the West German government closely about that every day. Uh, but Margaret Thatcher thought that we were not being sufficiently consulted. She also thought uh, that it shouldn't go so fast because that could destabilize Europe. Um, and she also, frankly, did not like the Germans and didn't want them to be stronger uh, than they already were with the great success of the Federal Republic. So I was in favor of unification and my ultimate boss was the powerful figure of Margaret Thatcher was not in favor. And she said that publicly. Um, François Mitterrand, the French president, had exactly the same feelings as her, possibly even more definitely anti-German. But he didn't say that publicly. And so um, he just kept quite quiet, showed no, in, no approval and no disapproval. And then he said to Helmut Kohl, I'll, I'll support you on unification, but there's something I want. And he made uh, uh, Kohl agree to the single currency in, in Europe, uh, which the Germans were very hesitant about. They hadn't said no, but they, were, they, were, they didn't like it. And the Bundesbank, which was the a very important power in the land, didn't want it at all. We looked at a Germany which was changing, uh, and I thought it was actually a good thing. That is to say, I was looking at it, not 
so much in terms of Germany itself, <coughs> where I didn't think there was a risk. I mean, I, there is endless stuff in there uh, of what I wrote about why Germany in uh, between the wars was utterly different from Germany uh, in 1990. So it was a good country, very successful, very self-confident, very, very stable, very peaceful. Uh, and I, that was good, I thought, to, ex to, to extend that success, that democracy, over 17 million more people in East Germany in unification. I thought that would be good. But my real reason of, of, of wanting it was that it would be the end of the Cold War. There would be the liberation of all those countries from the Soviet yoke, from domination by Moscow. Uh, and there would be the end of the Soviet threat, which in my lifetime had been since the war, the threat to our freedom. And so I was very much in favor of it. And she, I mean, I talked to her quite a bit. And she said, look, we know how to deal with the Soviet threat. What we have to watch is a German threat coming back. We don't know how to deal with that. So that was a sort of ultimate version of her dislike of what was happening, happening in Germany. Well, I didn't think that view would prevail. I only knew of Mitterrand. Even Gorbachev wasn't likely to support that, as it was quite clear from what, the way he was behaving. So um, I thought it would be a matter of months before Margaret Thatcher's view that unification should not happen or should not happen for a long time uh, would prevail. I thought that it would, be, it would be quite clear quite soon that that could not happen. And so I kept on seeing my staff to, to London. I wrote what I thought would happen and what I thought we should do and what our interests in my view should be and how we'd set about it and who we should deal with in, in, in the Bond government and so on and so on and doing that myself a lot. Um, and I just went on like that, but I didn't in public say anything which, or even in private to the German government, say anything which would actually be different from what my prime minister was saying very articulately, yeah. very frequently. Meanwhile, yeah, I was about to say, meanwhile, Margaret Thatcher was giving very unhelpful interviews. Yeah, uh, she gave some interviews which said, said what she really thought, <laughs> uh, and I didn't really think that. So I kept quiet publicly, and even talking to the German government, they may have guessed from what I said about it all that I was in favour of unification, but I never said that. I never said anything which was different from what Margaret Thatcher was saying. I didn't say the same things as she was saying because I didn't believe them. I just kept quiet on that, but I, and I went on doing my job quietly and to London telling them, telling them what I thought would happen and what should happen and what we should do. Uh, and eventually, I mean, it wasn't long after the fall of the war, it was about the 10th of February, 1990, i.e. three months or four months after Really, really, East Germany began to break, break down. That it was recognized formally in a statement by NATO or by the NATO countries um, that uh, unification was going to come. So that was the end of my difference with her. But it wasn't quite over because she gave a couple more interviews in the same line. But but it went away. And do you think there was a was there a real cost to to from the British point of view? Was there a real cost to Margaret Thatcher's? Um, sort of hostilities to Germany? That's a very, very good question. Um, and in my view, at that time, immediately, there was a cost. I thought that our um, standing in Germany and therefore our influence in Germany had been harmed by the Prime Minister's public stance. But 
I didn't know how long that would last. Um, and I tried hard to compensate for that by, I mean, I did some things myself, such as building up the British cooperation with the, the new part of United Germany, the ex-communist part. My successors in the job of ambassador in Germany still thought for a time that the Thatcher statements during unification had done harm to our reputation in Germany. And I suppose even today there would be some slither of remainder of that, but I think it really, it really subsided and other things, notably our attitude to Europe, uh, became the big difficulties. Mm. And as someone who's basically, the vast majority of your career was spent fighting the Cold War, um, um, what do you make of, um, you know, to take the phrase that's often used, the, the idea that there's a, there's a new Cold War being fought today and that relations with Russia are, um, if not as bad as, 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 as they were then, then at least uh, things haven't worked out as, as, as people hoped. Well, I completely agree that things have not worked out as people hoped. Uh, Russia, we all, of course, hoped would become um, a dem democracy or at least um, a mild autocracy we and the Russian people uh, did not get that. Um, what we got after much messing about in the Kremlin was Putin, who is truculent and nationalistic. I don't think this is like the Soviet Union, really. I think it's a big disappointment because it's not democratic. But if you compare Putin with past Russian and Soviet leaders, he's the least bad in this field of, of uh, autocracy. Um, the commissars and the tsars were far more uh, tough as leaders, far more intolerant than he is. Uh, just to take one nice single big example, uh, in the Soviet Union, private property was illegal. Well, that's not true <laughs> in post-Soviet Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, people can travel, uh, people uh, can say pretty much what they think, not necessarily publish it, that's another story. He has clamped down on the media. That's an example, the media are, are, are very much constrained, but freedom of speech, as distinct from freedom of publication, uh, is still there, and that's the first time. I mean, the, there may have been two short periods in Russian history when there was a certain amount of relaxation of all the autocracy. One was the period from March to October 1917, the, the um, interregnum or the, the chaotic period uh, before the Bolsheviks took over the revolution. And then there's Yeltsin, uh, 11 years of inebriated incompetence, but um, nevertheless uh, more, more freedom than Putin. And so Putin then ratchets back and reimposes some of the um, controls, uh, but not as much as there was under the Soviet leaders or under the Tsars. And then to look at Putin um, rather, than, rather, from, rather than from a Russian point of view, but from a, from a Western point of view, how, 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 do, how, sort of, how, how do you rank his threat to um, stability and, and Well, and my view about that uh, is based on a diplomat's professional method, which is to try and see into the mind of the antagonist or the opponent you're dealing with. And I watch Putin's behavior, and I do not think he is a dangerous risk taker. 
I think he wants to do things which will make the Russian people proud again, after self-confident again at least, after what he regards as the worst event of the 20th century, which was the end of the Soviet Union. Um, and so that was a humiliation, and he's trying to get out to get, get away from the humiliation of the Russian people. Uh, and so what has he done? Well, initially it was economic success, which definitely affected the standard of living, and that was popular, and that was the first way, means by which he became really popular in the, in, in the country. But then uh, that ran into difficulty, and is still in difficulty, uh, and he took Crimea. That was, whatever you think of him, it was a very clever operation because he got Crimea, which gave him huge popularity again in his own country, uh, and really it cost him nothing much at all in international repercussions. There are sanctions, and sanctions are not nothing. I mean, the sanctions on Russia now are um, definitely a problem for Putin. So there was that, which was, and, and Crimea was part of the reason for it, but the actual success, the triumph of taking back a piece of the former Soviet Union and of Russia uh, without any shots being fired uh, was really very clever. And then you compare that with what's happened since. And in Ukraine, he has gone in, it's nobody need to take seriously the idiocy of um, pretending the soldiers there are not actually Russian. They quite clearly are, but they just have different labels on their shoulders. He has put them in there, into eastern Ukraine, and then nothing very much has happened. Um, think about this, Oliver, in terms of the um, folk memory of the Russians. Kiev, now the capital of Ukraine, was the cradle of orthodoxy, of the orthodox religion, which is the religion much more than so communism ever was, of the Russian people. Uh, it was the cradle of Muscovy, which became um, the Russian lands, which are the guts of the Russian Federation, the Balkovich, but also of the Soviet Union. And so there he is with these undercover forces, not very undercover, but not completely visible forces in East Germany, sorry, in East Ukraine. Um, and uh, he did not try to do anything about Kiev, which was in striking distance. To have got Kiev, where on the one hand have been a very provocative act and could have led to uh, big, big problems with the West, might even have brought a civil war in Ukraine. Uh, but um, it would also, within Russia, have been a oh, fantastic feeling of pride and confidence and all those horrible things of, of, of of um, humiliation, and for that matter, of communism are gone. Now we are a great power under Putin again. That would have been fantastic, but he didn't do it because the risks he decided were too great. And that's what I think is the key, key to Putin. I think he's not an impetuous risk taker at all. I think he thinks carefully about what to do, and he doesn't like to take the sort of risk which will lead to an escalation of of tension uh, with the United States. And so uh, he thinks about the risks, and if he sees the risks as being too great for the gain, 
he just keeps quiet. Try then to think what would he regard as a risk and take the obvious example of the Baltic states. The Baltic states are in NATO and there is a guarantee. The NATO treaty says that an attack on any member is an attack on all members. Uh, and that is well known to Putin. And he would have to ask himself, is taking the city of Riga or is taking any part of the Baltic states going to cause the Americans to risk the population of Chicago from Russian nuclear weapons for that tiddly piece of um, pawn on the chessboard of the world. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a real question. And I think that Putin could not answer that question by saying, saying of course, the Americans will threaten nuclear war. Um, he, he wouldn't expect that. But what he also cannot do is to say, of course, they won't, because there is actually a treaty which obliges them to react. Uh, and it's a very important treaty, which was the treaty which is the base of NATO, which was a big force in the Western victory in the Cold War. So um, he would say to himself, probably, they may not do it. They perhaps won't, but it's possible. And what he'd have to have done in order to do something dangerous in the Baltic states would be to exclude that risk. And he can't. Even if he could exclude it to 95%, uh, it would still be, I, I think, enough, because he is careful for him to not take that risk. And, and you're describing uh, quite sort of conventional, traditional geopolitical maneuvers here. You're describing invasions of countries mm. and, and so on. Okay, let's um, talk about that. Um, but there is another front, mm. isn't there, in, the, in mm. our conflict with or mm. standoff mm. with Russia. And um, as someone who's... And, and, a, and a big aspect of that is it, it, it was based on new technologies and so forth. So what do you make of, of this kind of new front in... You mean cyber war? I mean, yeah, I mean hacking, I mean, I mean yeah. uh, interference, alleged interference yeah. in the Russian, in well, the US I, election. I and completely agree. That is a new front, uh, and it is a more real discussion than the theoretical one I was giving you about traditional deterrence. It's quite clear, I think, I don't know if it's proven, you're talking to me now about something which happened since I left the Foreign Office. Uh, I think it's clear that there was interference. Uh, in the Trump election. Uh, we'll know for sure in due course, but looks like it. I think that that kind of aggression, cyber aggression, uh, intervention in the um, electronic systems on which free countries depend, uh, and trying to screw, to, to distort um, the ability of the authorities in democratic countries to run free elections, for instance, that is quite clearly a new front uh, and it's dangerous, um, but it isn't comparable with the sort of danger we were looking at in 1962 in the Cuba crisis. De annihilation of the world, actually, we were looking at then as a, as a possible risk. This needs to be managed. We need it's a technological task for, for the West and especially for the United States, but I think for all the NATO countries, that we must be able to defend ourselves against cyber attack. And we also must uh, ourselves be able to retaliate or even to take the initiative 
in harming them in the same way. There's an idea going around that we live in sort of uniquely unstable and uncertain times at the moment, and that there was, you know, there was this fast, more, more stable uh, uh, recent history, which um, we, we, we desperately need to get back to. Do you, as someone with, who's been on the front line in such kind of uncertain moments in history, what do, you, what do you make of that sort of argument? Well, there's always been uncertainty. In the Cold War, there was uncertainty between two huge nuclear powers, uh, or you could say one on one side and the Americans and the French and the British uh, on the other side. And that was absolutely the biggest risk you could imagine. If Khrushchev had pressed the nuclear button during the Cuba crisis, he would not have, not only have done the thing he most, that most horrified him, which was to kill his beloved grandchildren, he would have killed the world, or he would have killed the developed world. Uh, large swathes of the world would have been decimated. Uh, and that's not the threat we face now. Um, you could imagine threats which would be very widespread, such as some kind of biological warfare uh, or chemical. But um, I don't think there's anything to compare with the nuclear war that was possible in 1962. What there is, uh, is a whole lot of lesser things and the new front of cyber war. Um, I don't think the new front, I may be wrong about this, I don't really know, but I don't think the cyber war thing is going to be um, the sort of thing that produces a conflagration across the world or produces the um, buckling under of one of one of the major one of the major powers like America or Russia, uh, without um, without soldiers or bombs being involved. I think it's a different kind of bad bad threat, uh, but it's not at that level. There's another question in your question, which is, is the world a more unstable place looking at it as a whole? And um, I don't know a time when there haven't been uh, quite a few small wars going on around the world. I don't think the horrors that are going on now, say in Yemen, are um, bigger as a threat to the world than many of the lesser things that happened uh, outside the confrontation of the great powers during the Cold War, lesser things. So uh, I don't think that the, the instability around the world is more acute or more dangerous than in my time. I think the instability between the major powers is very, very, very much less. Uh, and a, another point to add on that is that Putin is weak. Well, that's a big thing in the psychology of East-West confrontation. Putin knows that the strength of his country and his economy compared with the West is weak and equally uh, militarily as well. Although he's trying to modernize the Russian forces, he will not be as strong as the Soviet Union was versus us in military terms. So there's quite a lot of psychology in that for him, or you could say a chip on his shoulder looking, mm. at, looking at us. But I think the, the answer to your very important question is that Across the world, there's lots of instability, but there always was at any time in the Cold War. Uh, between the, nu the nuclear powers, there is less danger than there was. And the new front of cyber warfare doesn't look to me like the kind of thing which will blow up the world, 
but it is something we have to take seriously and spend a lot of money on development of our own technology in that field. But what about internally within Western societies? Is there a sort of lack of a clear sense of what what we stand for versus, you know, in the Cold War there was an obvious um, choice between two systems. Do you think now that there's this sort of um, internal lack of confidence that means all these things are are less predictable? Mm. Um, It's certainly true that uh, the Soviet threat, which was a real thing, was a piece of um, magnificent glue for the solidarity and the strength of NATO. The fact that the NATO countries stayed together, did not allow themselves to be split apart by Soviet propaganda, is derived partly, not entirely, uh, from the Soviet threat. So that is right, and there isn't a Soviet threat of the same kind now. Looking at Western society, and here I'm going right out into the world's concerns, not a professional concern of my own, I don't know more about it than anyone else, but it seems to me that in the societies of the developed democracies, there is a very great deal of uh, expression of dissent, and that's what's called freedom. I have nothing, no criticism of that at all. There is something new, perhaps, I think it's very serious, and that is the wealth inequality within Western countries. That we need to deal with. Uh, it's a, it's a, a potential, you could say it's a precancerous malady for us. It could turn very nasty. Um, that's, I think that's a first priority of any Western government at the present time, to help people who have not benefited from the fantastic economic growth we've had in the last 30 years, to help them to participate in the benefits of that. Because otherwise we will get um, dissent from very large numbers of people and we will get big surprises. And in my view, the Brexit vote was also a kind of chance result caused partly by what I just said about, about people feeling left out of the goodies of growth well, on that slightly um, gloomy note, I think we can call it late. So, Christopher Mallaby, thank you very much. Well, thank you.